You are now listening to the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast, hosted by Darrell Smith, with Paulus Ruger and Honeymoon in Vegas. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. This is Darrell Smith, and I wanted to go ahead and get this thing popped off. Um, before we get into the episode with Terry Bombeck of Shooting, uh, Shooting Sportsman Magazine, a couple of things I wanted to go over. Project Upland. Let's talk about Project Upland, guys. This, <laughs> AJ DeRosa, Chet Herbie, Nick Larson, um, and everybody, Will Sensing, everybody on the Project Upland crew, I wanted to give those guys a shout out. Um, just for all the hard work that they've been putting in. So first and foremost, on March 31st of this month, the new AYA film is coming. If you have not checked out that trailer, please go do so. You can check out Northwoods Collective um, on YouTube. You can go to Project Upland website. I mean, it's, it's out there, guys. Go check it out. Also, please, 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 if you have an iPhone or any kind of Apple product, guess what? You can find my article and any other Project Upland articles um, on the Apple News app now. Yeah, right. That's pretty dope, right? Um, AJ and them hit me up, uh, I think it was yesterday, and basically was like, hey, you're on Apple News. <laughs> that was really, really cool. So, guys... If you have an iPhone, if you have the Apple News app, go ahead and subscribe and follow Project Upland um, on that platform. Also, one major, major, major thing that needs to be talked about, discussed, is um, climate change. Let's talk about climate change. If we want to talk about conservation and keeping our game birds alive, you want to go to Project Upland and look at the article um, how climate change is affecting shark-tailed grouse. It was written by Ryan Listen. Ryan, that was a great article, man. Um, keep pushing that stuff. AJ, great, great, great content that you guys are pushing. Um, again, Chet, Nick Larson, I mean, those guys are really pushing the bar and really setting the tone for just the new generation of upland bird hunters. And, and the Project Upland movement is just continuing to grow. Um, very, very, very large and very, very, very effectively. And y'all know me, man. I've been a Project Upland fanatic ever since they came out. So, um, also, 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 Dakota 283 Kennels. I want to talk about those folks. Greg Cronkite again. If you have not listened to that episode, you need to go and do so. you find out everything you need to know about Dakota 283 Kennels. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you do a lot of driving and it's field trial season, it's hunt test season, it's back training season again. Keep your dog safe, guys. Go ahead and get one of those G3 kennels. I have one. I absolutely love it. And I'm working on kennel breaking Mr. Vegas. It's been working. Okay. Um, also, before the month of March ends, make sure you guys keep your dogs hydrated. Go get you a Dine and Dash product. Um with the code TGDN50DD, all right? Make sure you purchase a kennel first at checkout. Put in that promo code and it'll help me out. It'll help uh, Dakota283 out as far as getting their products out there on the market because I really do think these kennels are the best things in the world. So make sure you guys go take a look at Dakota283 kennels. 
Um, also, 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 Lion Country Supply. Make sure you guys go check that stuff out too. Um, I can't go down the list fast enough with all the things that I got me all googly-eyed as far as Lion Country Supply products. And these guys have been in the game for a very long time. They know bird dogs. Um, again, check out the episode with Eric Munden if you haven't. If you need to know more about Lion Country Supply and the folks that are really behind that that uh, that brand, I mean, I'm behind it. I hope that if you listen to this podcast, you you would you know find some kind of encouragement to go hop on that too. <laughs> also, what I like about Lion Country Supply, um, their mailing list is actually really dope. Um, they have a lot of good sales coming on. So it's spring training. Go ahead and get yourself. I got my eyes on a couple of popper uh, primer pistols, 22 calibers, um, and just a load of other different things. So Lion Country Supply. I wanted to thank those guys as well. Also, one big thing that's coming up for me is puppy season. The Pride Dog Food. It's about time for me to switch Vegas off of. Um, off of the puppy formula and get him onto the adult formula. I called my vet today and, you know, I had a couple of couple of questions about the way his bones is growing. He's a little bow-legged just like me. It's all good. Ain't no big deal. Um, and they just told me to switch him to the adult formula. That, was, that would help him and that would solve that problem. And I've never had an issue with the pride dog food and the adult performance blend anyway, so I'm actually ready to get him on that. Um, Lil Vegas is looking good. If y'all check my social media, that dang point was solid. But I want to go ahead and make sure his bones and development is uh, taken care of. So it's time to make that switch. Go ahead and check out the Pride Dog Food. Get the red bag, guys. <laughs> if you got questions, reach out. You'll definitely see more of that soon. And honestly, I'm glad to do that so I don't have to keep on switching between two bags. All right? Um, Orvis. Want to thank those guys. They've always looked out for me. They've been good folks. Um, and also, if you are on the Orvis hunting and shooting blog, you should go check out my article that was just published recently, A Good Season Past. That's what it was called. And it's just a bit of a recap and some, some very introspective uh, approaches to the season and, you know, some of my philosophical type stuff I got going on. I've, I've really been pushing that angle. Um, you know, all these bird dogs, it, it got me thinking. So, anywho, um, my last thing, well, my second to last thing, Shooting Sportsman Magazine. I'm a subscriber now, thanks to Terry. After y'all get done with this episode, you will absolutely see why I'm a subscriber. <laughs> um, Terry Bombeck is just a wonderful guy and allowed me to get on the uh, subscriber list. And, you know, I've always purchased Shooting Sportsman Magazine anyway. Um, that was just always one of my top ones since I got into the hunting and uh, shooting uh, community. So, I'm just going to tell you now, the stories, the articles, if you haven't read it, they're always quality. And they really, really kind of bring home all of our thoughts as far as the upland bird, uh, upland bird hunting and wing shooting community. So, make sure that you guys... Go and subscribe to Shooting Sportsman Magazine. It's always good to have the print magazines in your hand, okay? Just like I feel about Project Upland Magazine, Shooting Sportsman Magazine is up there in terms of quality as well, and they've been around for a very, very, very long time, all right? I'm only gonna ask you guys to subscribe to the things that I definitely read all 
all the time because those that's that's how I learn, right? Um, finally, I just want to give a, another personal shout out to uh, my wife, who we just found out our little our little uh, baby that we got coming up in August. Well, if you haven't figured out, if I haven't said it a hundred million times. We are having a girl. We're having a little girl. So hopefully I get a chance to read this good old snake foot book to her for bedtime stories and, and uh, you know, share the good knowledge of the bird dog community and she'll get a chance to grow up with Vegas and Ruger and, and really see how I'm working these dogs. So anywho, I just wanted to tell my wife I love her and shout out to her on the air. She's, uh, you know, she's definitely keeping me motivated all the time. So... With that being said, guys, that is the end of my uh, announcements and anything else that I can think of right now. I want to go ahead and get you to the episode. Guys, this is Terry Bombeck of Shooting Sportsman Magazine. I mean, when you're talking about uh, somebody with a resume, (laughs) you'll find out real quick. This man has literally traveled around the world and shot, I mean, dozens of species of game birds and it's just really a true gentleman so stay tuned uh for another episode of gun dog notebook this is terry bombeck coming up okay guys welcome back to a very 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 special episode of the gun dog notebook podcast i am your host Darrell smith and i have a very very surprising guest on. Um, I've been itching to get on, get uh, Terry on all day. Terry Bombeck of Shooting Sportsman Magazine, who has an, a, an extremely extensive resume. First of all, uh, Terry, before we get on, you know, you, you, Terry Bombeck has been here forty. He's forty nine years old. Um, the associate publisher and director of Wing Shooting. Um, you've been in the industry 25 years. I mean, Terry, how are you, man? Like, you've been doing a lot. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm doing okay. It's been mostly fun stuff. So, uh, so that, that's all great. Well, you sent me a bio earlier today, and you sent me a dissertation, man. <laughs> <laughs> a, that's, that's the short version, Darrell. You don't want to see it along. But that's, that's a, I had done... Um, a presentation for Orvis a few years ago. I was a keynote speaker of uh-huh. their uh, their wing shooting rendezvous, and Reed Bryant, who you also know, mm-hmm. uh, was uh, one of me to send in a little bio to to do an introduction to the the crowd there before I took the stage. And I figured, okay, well, Darrell uh, would probably like to see a little bio too. So I just actually copied and pasted and sent that to you. Well, I. I would literally spoil the podcast if I read off everything that you have on here. (laughs) You have. So just, I mean, one thing that really got me before we even get into anything crazy, you, you've hunted literally around the world. And I think that's the basis of the podcast and the basis of much of your life that I want to talk about. I mean, when you talk about somebody, we were just talking about adventure You've lived that. I mean, seriously, looking at everything that you have on here. And I think as we get through the podcast, the listeners are definitely going to see what I mean by that. You are literally an upland hunter, adventurer. I mean, you you covered the whole gamut. 
Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's something that I think most people would do. Uh, I've had just the, the wonderful, fortunate opportunity to have been involved with shooting sports and magazine, uh, you know, which, as you know, is a magazine devoted exclusively to, to wing shooting and fine guns and dogs mm-hmm. and all the things that center around upland bird hunting and waterfowl hunting. And uh, it's the only really job, uh, the only real job that I've ever had. I started this pretty much right out of college. Wow. And uh, I've been doing it for 25 years. And, and the job has taken me to a whole bunch of places. I mean, per- I was perfectly willing to go and eager to go. <laughs> but the job kind of gave me the, you know, the, the pass card to kind of go and do all these things. And, you know, over the course of 25 years, it's added up to a lot of different uh, experiences and, and fortunately most of them have been wonderful experiences. I mean, I can believe it. I mean, everything that you have going on, you know, with the magazine, first and foremost, I just want to say, you know, just how thrilled I am with shooting sportsman magazine, just as a work of art. I mean, from the photography to everything, and you don't get that by staying stagnant, you know, so it's just a wonder how much content goes into this, and the fact that I got you on here is just a thrill. So you started this coming out of college. Talk about your early years and just how you, I mean, from the ground up, how you got or or, or found your way into the upland and wing shooting industry. Well, it started actually when I was a kid. It all started with an interest and a passion for, for bird hunting and wing shooting, and uh, that started when I was I don't know, probably about 10 years old. I grew up in southern New Jersey, and southern New Jersey is a lot different than, than regular New Jersey. Uh-huh. Northern New Jersey. Northern New Jersey is known for its turnpike exits and industrial parks and all that stuff. Southern New Jersey is, is really a rural area, at least it was when I was growing up uh, in that area. And um, I, uh, I had friends of my father's that owned a pair of Britneys. And they would go, I didn't get to go hunting with them, but they would go and run the dogs before the season, you know, get the dogs ready, you know, put them out in the covers, try to find some coveys of, of wild bobwhites, which we actually hadn't in southern New Jersey back then. Really? And I would tag along and go with these people, and I love the dogs, I love the idea of bird hunting. Uh, you know, I didn't have my own dog, so, you know, I'd, I'd come back from, from an outing with these people, I'd be so jazzed up that I would... I would be spending the next day trying to teach my uh, my neighbor's cat how to be woe broke. Uh, <laughs> just wow. a kind of time until my next outing with these people. Uh, but then eventually, you know, I got old enough to, to be able to hunt. And uh, uh, my father hooked me up with some of his friends that did uh, that were big time wing shooters, fortunately. And uh, they kind of mentored me. I got into it and uh, got my first bird dog when I was 13 years old. My dad went and, uh, with, unbeknownst to me, it was a surprise, part, one of the best surprises of my entire life. Uh, when my dad went and found uh, a German wire hair pointer from some backyard breeding, I think he paid like $120 for the dog. Okay. Uh, brought it home. It was a puppy, you know, like a, you know, maybe probably about a three-month-old dog. Yeah. And uh, brought that thing home, and, you know, that was it. From there, you know, I just spent all my time with that dog, training it in the uh, backyard and eventually taking it on hunts and, and all that, that, that kind of, kind of thing. 
And then, um, you know, I went off to college and, and uh, studied at West Virginia University. Uh, between a lot of partying and hunting on the side, I got a degree in marketing. <laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> then from there, uh, went to France for a year, did an internship there. And then when I was done uh, in France, uh, I'd always wanted to come and visit Maine. So I, I came straight to Maine, visited Maine. And uh, decided, you know, it's really cool around here. I really like this place. Maine is kind of like the, uh, like the, like the Montana of the East Coast, for for lack of a better expression. And that's and, a that's a uh, good pl- uh, expression, though. All right, good, good. Well, anyway, um, I, I really like it here. I said, you know, I, I want to kind of stay and hang out here. There's great hunting, great fishing. It's you know a lot of you know uh, wilderness around. And uh, problem is, I have to find a job of some sort. So uh, I'm kind of like looking around and I grab a, a newspaper one day and I'm looking at the help wanted ads and I see an ad that, you know, it read like a lot of these, these normal ads, you know, looking for a motivated self-starting, yada, 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 uh-huh. you know, with uh, good organizational skills, you know, whatever, 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 uh, knowledge of wing shooting and fine guns and bird dogs that very helpful. And I was like, okay, boom, that's my job. <laughs> so I uh, came in and interviewed and uh, that's, I've been doing this job for the last uh last 25 years so that's 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 my very strange and perhaps not so glamorous entry into the wing shooting industry uh and then from that point forward it was you know you know i got an opportunity to to do this job and i focused really hard on it worked seven days a week you know and it was easy to work seven days a week because i loved all this stuff right and uh, and eventually, you know, that kind of let uh, you know. I started kind of in the bottom rung, selling ads in the magazine, and then just kind of worked my way up over the years. Wow! So, I mean, you talk about a grand entry. <laughs> first, first of all, you started off with. I'm sorry, a wire hair is not something that I was expecting you to tell me. You started with. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no! Great, great, great dogs. And uh, I'm. Uh, I actually, when I was in a situation where I could own bird dogs again, I went right back to wire hairs. I, I've done always done a lot of upland hunting mm-hmm. and enough waterfowl hunting that you know versatile dog made a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, because you know wire hair was my first ever dog, I, I definitely had a, a super big affinity for the breed. It worked well for me. Right. And I also knew that I could do a heck of a lot better job training my second and third and fourth dogs than I did my first dog when I was 13. Right. So uh, that all kind of came together and, uh, and made it the breed that worked for me for a long, long time. Well, I mean, that is just, that is awesome. And of course, I have to, I have to go ahead and give my, my, my little wire hair shout out. My uh, buddy Richard has a uh, Deutsch Drothar and... Uh, yeah. And and I I call his dog a nutcase, but I really truly do <laughs> admire him. I do, um, but Richard knows every time he hears wire hair, I'm gonna say something about it. And I know he's listening yeah. to this podcast. <laughs> so no, I get it. And you know, like Richard, I've heard a lot of that stuff. Uh, I got a lot of ribbing over my choice of breed, but I know a lot of that ribbing is done affectionately. Yeah, yeah uh, not yeah. in a a, a mean spirited or malicious way. Well. So, uh, uh, it, it's easy to swallow that, you know, when it's when, it's, when it comes from good people mm-hmm. just having fun. Well, and I think that's what I really like about the wing shooting and bird dog uh, community. It's the one place I know I can have a beer and and give you some mess about your dog, and you can send it right back, and we can have a laugh and still go out and hunt, and it's all fun and games. 
Um, so often do I talk about, and, and you are a very good example of this, but so often do I talk to people about how welcoming this community is and just yeah. how open it is, you know, like it's all about the storytelling and everybody likes to get together and talk. It, it, I mean, that's, I that's the primary basis of it and just have a good time with the dogs. I mean, the common denominator is the dogs. Well, you know what? I always say that, and then when I think about it more, the birds are kind of, you know, and the outdoors. Okay, and the yeah. Adventure that you and I were talking about earlier. Right. But I think the dogs is definitely, the dogs is like the, the strongest one. Right. You know, the relationship you have, like, with this other creature, you know, where you're working together that way. Uh, there's a lot of things, but I, but I will say that I don't think anything outdoes the relationship that we have with our dogs. Right, right. I, I can totally agree with that, and... You know, that in much of this conversation, I definitely want to get into it because you have some really good insights. But, you know, just moving, you know, moving further into your tenure in this, you know, you've been at, at Shooting Sportsman um, magazine 25 years. So talk about your role and especially how you've grown. Like, I really want to hear about that matriculation. Yeah. Well, uh, for people who don't know Shooting Sports and Magazine, it's a, uh, it's a bi-monthly kind of high-production-value high magazine that focuses exclusively on wing shooting. And our definition of wing shooting is upland birds, waterfowl, clay shooting, pretty much anything you shoot with a shotgun. Right. So, you know, our focus is on all those things and then everything that's involved in a part of, of that activity. So the, uh, the guns and the dogs are a huge part of wing shooting and uh, that's what we we do. The magazine was started. I don't know if you're aware of this, Darrell, but uh, was started by Steve Smith, who for a long time was the editor of uh, Pointing Dog Journal. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually the guy who started shooting sports in uh, really. Years ago. And then the company I work for now, Down East Enterprise, bought shooting sports from 25 years ago. That's that's right when I started with with this company working on on the magazine. But the, um, my okay. current role is, uh, it's actually, I have two titles, associate publisher and director of wing shooting. And uh, associate publisher or publisher at a magazine is kind of a general manager. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of am involved with a wide variety of things at the magazine. You know, I, uh, I kind of work with the editor and, and consult with him about the editorial lineup, what kind of magazine, what kind of articles, rather, we're going to run in various issues. Yeah. Uh, I kind of uh, oversee a lot of the marketing and sales of the magazine for subscriptions, for newsstand sales, for advertising. I work on the uh, budgets, setting the budgets and managing the expenses for the magazine over the course of the year. And a lot of spreadsheets, too. That's the downer part of my job. <laughs> yeah, well, it, there, there's got to be something. But, look, you're still in, yeah. the, in the green. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is a job after all, and, and that's the work part of it. Uh, but my other title is the one I, I enjoy probably more. And the director of wing shooting essentially is my responsibilities in the area of uh, what we call reader-writer adventures. And uh, it's three or four hunts that shooting sportsmen kind of uh, manages and organizes mm -hmm. and uh, hosts for readers from all over the country. So we'll pick a nice lodge somewhere in Georgia for quail or South Dakota for pheasants, and uh, a writer or myself will, will go and be the host and kind of have just 
12, 14, 20 readers from all over the country just kind of pile into the lodge and kind of spend three or four days hunting together, getting to know each other. Uh, a lot of guys bring their own dogs. Uh, lodges have awesome dogs. So that's obviously a, a fun part of oh our responsibility. And the other part of being uh, director of wing shooting involves a new project that we're launching right now, and that's an endorsed lodge program. Uh, kind of, you know, shooting sportsmen kind of going around and vetting some of the best wing shooting lodges in the country and uh, giving kind of our, our seal of approval to, the, uh, to those places. You know, that is so interesting. And that's what you were telling me about the other day. So, I mean, what can I ask you? Is it too much to ask? Like, what, is, what do you guys look for in, you know, in I guess the best lodges around the country? What qualifies someone for that? That's a very, it's a very simple question with with a very complex answer. Okay. And I'm going to try to give you the short version because the long version would be a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> but, but, you know, we're looking for places where the readers or, you know, people that go there would have, are, are pretty sure to have a good experience. Okay. A lot of these trips are, your people are flying across the country to go to these lodges and uh, they want a really nice experience. They want to be able to get some shooting. They want to have high quality shooting. They want to stay in a nice place for a lot of people. You know, it's their big vacation of the year or in some cases their big vacation of a lifetime. And uh, we want to make sure that, that we're kind of uh, recommending and pointing them toward places where, you know, they're very, very unlikely to go home disappointed. Right. Uh, you know, the other thing that goes into vetting these places, and it's part of what I just said, is, you know, in 25 years of, of working on the magazine, it's not just me, our editor, Ralph Stewart, has been here this long also. You know, we've had a chance, either us personally or writers of ours or uh, dozens and dozens of our readers have gone and hunted at a lot of these places. And in many cases, we've met the owners, we know the owners, we see them at a lot of the industry shows, and we, we know these businesses, you know, we know they run really good operations. We know that the vast majority of the people that go to these places have had very, very good experiences. So that's kind of the general overarching answer to your question. Wow, okay, that is really cool. and. Look, one day when I get my coins together, I might have to uh, see, see if I can visit one of those lodges. Like, that is really cool, man. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of these lodges are fancy lodges, but uh, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, if you can't get your coins together, there are tons of phenomenal hunts that you can have without without going to a fancy lodge. And, yep. you know, uh, again, uh, because of my involvement with the magazine, I have the opportunity to hunt anywhere I want and, you know, real, real fancy places. And usually my first choice when it comes to going hunting is to go public land hunting in Arizona for quail. Oh, man. You said the magic words. woodcock hunting in Minnesota or something like that. I mean, I don't mind going to the fancy lodges. They're really, really great. And and it is a surefire slam dunk experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, uh, my favorite hunts generally tend to be the ones that really don't cost a ton of money. Right. Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, something that I'm glad you actually brought up. And, you know, shooting sportsmen, just I've, I've been reading the magazine since I got into um, upland hunting. And I can honestly say a lot of the content in there talks about 
public land hunting and public land game birds. I mean, as you said before, grouse and woodcock are totally wild. And I, and I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, you know, because what I do like about this industry is it can be, I guess, had and done by anyone. You know, it doesn't matter how expensive your gun is or, or anything like that. If you go out and, you know, you got something that shoots, you know, number six shot <laughs> and you got a dog that's halfway decent, most of the time you can have a good time on public land. Yeah. You know, and I, I just really like that aspect of it. So, you know, as we talk about, you know, access to land and, and public land, particularly, are there any like any places that you've traveled, any favorite bird hunts? Like, give me give me some insights on that. Uh, I, you know, there's been a lot of. A, a wide variety of places that, that I've been. There have been very exotic destinations like Africa and Argentina and Driven Pheasant in England. Uh, and then there's been, you know, stuff that I do in my own backyard, you know, or, or maybe, you know, at least a two or three hour car ride away. Uh, and then there's some things that are in between. Okay. And uh, like, like do-it-yourself hunts that I've done, you know, in, in Canada, you know, Saskatchewan in particular. That might very well be the answer to the question you just asked, you know, of all my favorite places to hunt. Really? Uh, I love Saskatchewan because it's, it's first of all, I, I live in the, in the uh, eastern part of the country. Yeah. Where everywhere you turn, there's a tree 25 feet in front of your face. You can't really see much. When uh -huh. you get out to anywhere out west where it's big open country, and you can probably appreciate this too, Darrell. I know you, you live in Georgia, but you traveled to Kansas, so you can appreciate how nice it is. To oh, be my God. It's country. so open. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you get a uh, – uh, there's no bigger sky than there is in the western provinces of Canada, the flatter ones, at least, when you're not in the mountains. Really? And uh, there's just tons of ground. Most of it's privately held. Mm -hmm. But uh, talk about places where you can go around and knock on doors and get permission at just about every single place that you go. Uh, and these places are 5,000, 13,000 acre places, you know, what? that you're getting permission to hunt. And uh, by the time you're hunting the first one, somebody's pulled up in a pickup, pickup truck and telling you that their cousin owns one four miles down the road and you can go and hunt that place. And uh, it's all pure, all wild bird hunting. And, and it's a mix, a beautiful mix of waterfowl and upland. You know, it's uh, the upland is, is, you know, there's not that many species. You know, you can get some parts of Saskatchewan where there's uh, rough grouse, mm -hmm. very good rough grouse hunting. But what my favorite thing is what you get in the, uh, the agricultural areas like southwest Saskatchewan, for example, where it's just, you know, these vast grain fields and uh, your shelter belts and that kind of thing. And in there, the three predominant species are, are Hungarian partridge, sharp-tailed grouse and ring-neck pheasant. Uh, Non-residents uh, of the province of, of Saskatchewan are not allowed to hunt the pheasants. So okay. when you're upland bird hunting in that part of, uh, of the province, you're, you're really only hunting the sharp-tailed grouse and Hungarian partridge. But uh, it's some of the best habitat for both of those species, particularly the Hungarian partridge. When they're having a really, really banner year in, in Alberta, or Saskatchewan, that very well might be the best, probably would be the best Hungarian partridge hunting on the entire planet. Really? Uh, 
and uh, and then the, and then the waterfowl is like world renowned also. Uh-huh. And you know you, the amount of waterfowl that you see there is absolutely staggering. Just waves and waves of of not thousands, but in some cases tens of thousands of ducks and geese that you're seeing going by. And you know you drive around a little bit, and you know you don't have to go very far before you find a really good place to hunt all that stuff. Well, I mean, and you're talking about Canada. I mean, the waterfowl. You're right there at the top of the migration. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a couple of things. There's a lot of birds there, and those are some of the best birds that you can eat. They've been loafing around in uh, garbanzo bean fields, you know, what they call peas, uh, Mm -hmm. eating the chickpeas and all that stuff. And uh, they're kind of just going back and forth between their, their feeding areas and their roosting ponds. And uh, when you bring those things home, they're they're really like the Christmas goose, you know. They're they're dripping with beautiful fat and juices and everything like that. Man. It's uh, it's they're really great birds to eat. But you know, the thing about that trip that's really cool, Darrell, is it's not a fancy trip. We're not staying at some lodge when we go there. We're staying at like a cheap efficiency motel. You know, we would have flown in the Regina beforehand, rented an SUV. Often I'd ship my decoys to the hotel ahead of time. And, you know, somebody brings a bird dog along and that's it. You know, you bring your own gear and you do your own thing. So, you know, it's not as inexpensive as, you know, a hunt two hours down the road from where somebody might live. Right. But it's way, way, way cheaper than, you know, a fully guided hunt or staying at a fancy lodge somewhere. Right. So that's definitely now on my list of things to do. But real quick, just talking about the Huns up there, I've never even seen a Hun. I mean, we don't have them down here in Georgia. What is what is hunting Huns like? I mean, what are I heard they're pretty jumpy. They they can be. You know, a lot of these birds. It depends what time of the season you're hunting them. What what the, what's been happening? Not just in terms of hunting pressure, but uh, how the uh, the farmland has been managed. Sometimes they'll cut a crop, and that can that can change the behavior of the birds a little bit. But um, a lot of people from down your way, dying the wool quail hunters, love Hungarian partridge because they're cut bird like quail, and uh-huh. uh, they're fl- similar to the, the the flush of quail. And uh, no, they're they're like a super cool bird. They're probably you know. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned it earlier, but my bio, you know, I mentioned I killed 76 species of upland bird and waterfowl. I didn't want to spoil and, it uh, now. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Hungarian partridge is one of the top four or five birds that I like to like to hunt. Wow, that's wild. Okay, so I definitely have to get on those. I hear about them in the Dakotas. Um, yeah, but you know, just, I'm, I'm so close to the, in the Dakotas, I'd be so close to the border, might as well keep on going. So <laughs> yeah, you know, with a little bit of luck, if you're in the right part of, the, of North Dakota, you, you can find them there too. And, and more than just one cover, you can get into them pretty decent in good years. And also, you know, a great day in North Dakota is, you know, you're, you're emptying your bag and you've got some of those, uh, Hungarian partridge, but also maybe a sharp tail grouse and a couple of pheasant also. See, Okay. All right, so once we once we get off this call, I need you to help me con- come up with ideas and convince my wife to, <laughs> to, to drive on out that way. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So, okay, like I said, I didn't want to spoil it because I just, I, I it, it really blew my mind when you told me that you killed 76 species of upland birds. Okay, just talk about what that experience is like and how do you keep count? <laughs> you know, I, 
I never really was like, it was never really a goal of mine. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, like I mentioned earlier, I like to go to different places all the time. I very, very rarely hunt the same place twice when I travel. Uh, I like to see new country, meet new people. And, you know, along the way, what's happening is I'm also running into new species of, of upland birds and waterfowl that I end up hunting because all these trips are, are hunting trips. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was coming back in the plane you know, from one of these trips sometime and was like going over my head, oh, geez, you shot one of these, you never shot this species before. Oh, and you shot one of these. And I shot two or three things I'd never shot before. And I got to thinking, you know, well, you know, how many different things have you shot in your entire <laughs> life? And, and I started, I put out, pulled out a paper and a little notepad and started jotting things down. And I had no clue at that point. This was like about maybe 10 years ago. It, it, the, the number turned out to be like 67 or something like that. Wow. And if you asked me to guess what the number was before I started jotting it down, I would have said like maybe 25 or 30. Like I just never like realized like it, it, it added up to that many different things because I was never really paying attention along the way. Right. Uh, so that's kind of how, how that all, that all happened. And, you know, I just go by memory. I'm not, I'm not talking about birds I'm hunting. I'm hunted. I've talked about birds that I've, that I've bagged. Right. So, you know, there's a few birds that I've hunted before that I wasn't successful that if I had been, maybe the number would have, would be a little bit higher. But also what's interesting is, you know, all the birds that I have killed, but also some of the things that, that I haven't shot, you know, that people, you know, a lot of people maybe who've only killed six or seven birds in their life, you know, have killed. And, uh, you know, a good example of that is uh, a sage grouse uh-huh. uh, or, you know, people who live in Alaska, you know, shoot ptarmigan all the time. Uh, I've never shot ptarmigan. I've shot birds, seven different species of birds in Africa, but I've never shot a ptarmigan before. And uh, my, my memory is kind of failing me a little bit now, but there's actually a few more, much more common birds that, uh, that are not on my list. Uh, and, and I kind of just do it for, for fun. I don't, I'm not a bird collector. I'm not one of these guys that has everything mounted. I've never had anything mounted in my life, actually. Right. I've had a lot of pictures of these different things, but mainly the, the most important thing for me is just the memories and the experience of, of, of you know, all these travels. And the, 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 to me, I'm not as impressed by the number of birds that I've, that I've killed or hunted. Uh, I'm, I'm just happy that the result of all of the great places that I got to visit. Right, right. Now, one one question, and I and I get back on track with what we're going. When you go hunt in Africa, are, now are you running dogs? Because there's a lot of other stuff out there that'll take a dog. That I would assume. Are you running dogs on birds in Africa? Usually, usually not. Okay. Uh, and and you know there are some people that have dogs out there. There are a few great hunts with with pointing dogs, but uh, the uh, the times I've been out there, actually, it's uh, it's bird boys uh, or what they call bird boys. They're actually Maasai herdsmen out there on the plains. Those are the guys, you know, the tall guys with the long red robe mm-hmm. and the, uh, the big hoops through the earlobes and all that stuff. And uh, they love joining up with a hunt. And uh, they're actually the scouts. They know where all the game birds are because they bump into them all the time when they're herding their cows. Wow. And uh, they bring you along, and uh, they kind of stick their spears in the brush and rattle them around. They yell and scream and hoop when something flies, and uh, you, do, you do all that stuff. So uh, but that's one of the things I, I think would be really cool is, you know, when, my next time I go to Africa, I, I would love to do it in a place where they have dogs. And, of course, waterfowl hunting can be really tricky there with dogs too because of the crocodiles that they have in a lot of the bodies of water. Yeah, that was something that I thought about. I mean, like in in one of the hunt, in the last hunt that I went to in Thomasville, we were hunting and hadn't realized it until we had walked down a little bit of ways. We were hunting quail, obviously, and kind of got off on a detour because we saw some wood ducks and we started chasing them. 
Um, they, it seemed like they were jumping from tree to tree. <clears throat> we kind of ended up in a pond. And me and my buddy Shane saw a sign, and it was like, caution, you know, gators. <laughs> and we got the dogs, and the dogs were drinking water. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Come on back. <laughs> oh, no, I don't. You know, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of hazards out there for the dogs. You know, I yeah. mentioned early on in this discussion how I, I started uh, uh, when I was a kid running with those two uh Britney Spaniels, the friends of my parents. Mm-hmm. One of those two dogs, one of those two dogs, I wasn't there, but got into a fight with a raccoon on the edge of the water, a big boar raccoon. Really? And uh, they, they, they got in over the, the, you know, the dog's depth where it could reach the ground. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that raccoon got on the dog's head and drowned and killed the dog. Yeah, I have heard about stuff like that. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, but I have heard like some of these guys that run coon hounds and stuff, and I love the hound guys. Um, yeah. But yeah, these these coons are are smart, man, and they will drown a dog. That is just the most baffling thing to me. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of these guys, you know, uh, when their dogs get into a, a scrum with a raccoon on dry land, they're laughing and giggling. When that when it happens in the water, nobody's laughing, nobody's giggling. They're right. going in there to kind of you know break that whole thing up real real fast. Wow. Yeah, that is. I, I think just knowing. Knowing what the reality of that is, and especially it's so close to home because, I mean, we have them here down in Georgia. That has always been kind of a concern of mine. I mean, I love hunting South Georgia, but there's gators down there. And so I don't know. And fortunately, I mean, the quail are nowhere near, you know, nowhere near the gators. But that's definitely a reality for me. I mean, it's a very real thing. You know, for me down here also, we have um, rattlesnakes. Yeah, and I have to. I my wife and I were just talking about it. Um, I'm gonna end up investing in a pair of lacrosse boots, um, snake boots, but also um, I'm gonna get my dogs snake broke. I just think it will be a good thing to do. Nice peace of mind, if if nothing else. If if nothing else, it's, it's we're talking about sixty dollars for you know per dog. It's $120 for me, and I know that my dog won't want nothing to do with snakes because, you know, I got this little pointer here, and I it would kill me if my dog got struck. I mean, my lab, yeah, too, but my, my lab is a, is a tank. My little pointer, he's so young, that thing would kill that little dog. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, uh, I, I think you're on the right track with that. Yeah, yeah, so it's just, you know, when we talk about hunting all of these places, you know, these are things that, I mean, everywhere you go, these are things you have to worry about. I want to hunt in Arizona. That's one of my bucket list, I mean, top of my bucket list places to hunt. And I know that they're dealing with a lot of the same things that we're dealing with down here, rattlers. And it's just, it's peace of mind. I mean, <laughs> it's peace of now, mind. Now, what, what, what may... Um uh, ease your concerns at least a little bit is that, uh, you know, a lot of the best hunting out there is when it's the coldest out there. True. And uh, yeah. their cold is a lot warmer than your cold, uh, but, um, or at least for us here in Maine, it is. Yeah, and, it uh, is. And those rattlesnakes, as you know from where you live in the wintertime, they do get dormant and the likelihood of, a, of an incident drops dramatically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't take my dogs out until it's... 50 degrees at least and i mean that's on a on a on a bad day 50 degrees anything lower i'm all game for it 
But yeah, I mean, and and you'll still see the snakes down here. They will try to hold on now. I will say they will. They'll hold on as long as they can. Um, yeah. But again, they're they're gonna go dormant. Um, and I've I've never encountered um, a snake. I get photos from buddies all the time. These huge, you know, cane break rattlers. I mean, they are huge. But I personally have never come across one. I just, you know, knock on wood, Lord willing, I don't ever come across one, um, you know, in regards to my dog. It, it, I would know what to do, but I just don't want to have to make that type of decision. <laughs> no, I don't blame you, man. Yep, 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 yep. So, t- Terry, let's let's talk about the dog since we were already on there anyway. Now, yep. First and foremost, you you already stole my heart when you were talking about pointers and how you just absolutely loved that breed. So what what made you fall in love with that breed? And then we got to get on Robert Whaley too, and then we go get on the other dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I uh, I've always been a pointing dog person to begin with. You know, mm-hmm. when I had my even when I was younger and had my German wire hairs, you know, I used them mainly for upland and a little bit for waterfowl on the side. And um, pointers aesthetically, they're just a very, and to me, a very handsome dog. Yes, it's my sir. personal taste, my personal preference. And a lot of people agree on, on that. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're a beautiful dog. But the thing that I, I like about English pointers the most is that, you know, all dogs on point are a sight to behold. Yep. You know, uh, some, you know, setters with this, with its beautiful tail streaming in the wind is really, really great. Uh, maybe more attractive than a Brittany without that tail, but even watching a Brittany on a really nice point is great. Watching a, a German wire hair on a nice point or a Griffon on a nice point is great. All, I, I'm a believer that it's just a beautiful thing to see a dog on point. Right. But when you think about it, on the best day hunting, your dog is on point about 2% of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm the kind of wing shooting geek who's actually done the math on that. It is about 2% of the time. Really? But anyway, uh, anyway, uh, the other 90% of the time, you're watching your dog do something other than point, which generally means you're watching your dog course, you know, watching your dog cover ground, watching your dog stride. Mm-hmm. And to me, English pointers are not just a sight to behold when they're on point, but I just think they're so beautiful when they cover the ground. Uh, and you know, other dogs are, are a sight to behold when they're covering ground too, but to me, not quite the level of, of an English pointer. Yeah. 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 I, I can definitely agree. So coming from a purely artistic perspective, um, I've been doing a lot of drawings and a lot of illustrations and studies of my own pointer. He's a puppy. But I'm all about the muscle definition in that particular breed. Um, I really am because, you know, their skin is so thin. You can see every rip curve. I mean, I always tell people with a pointer, you know, you, you can scratch a diamond <laughs> if you rub it across yeah. a pointer shoulder. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm very much so into the aesthetic of it, um, just as much as I am into the cultural history and the cultural significance of them down here in the South too. Um, you know, I'm very big on that. And for me, just like a Labrador, which I have one and I, and he's very, a very pretty dog to me. The, uh, English pointer is, is very much. So he's kind of, he kind of looks gentlemanly, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, no, I, I agree with that. I, I love the way they hold their head up. And so drawing them, even as a puppy, is just a, a very um, captivating thing for me, you know. And so yeah. and, and I spent a lot of time before I got them. Um, I, I got them from Pine Hill Kennels down here. Very, very well known kennel. Um, and I mean, when I tell you it was my dream dog and I wanted me a LU pointer. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. just I, well, I, I want me an LU pointer too, and I've never owned a an English pointer as much as I like them. My next dog will be an LU pointer. You get come on down to Pine Hill, man. <laughs> get one from Tennessee. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe maybe it'll be one of your dog's pups. Uh, that, that, uh, look, you talking my language now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I, I like setters a lot more than I used to. I, I didn't like yeah. setters at all before. When I was younger, my friends and I used to call them Barbies. Really? Uh, you know, with the long blonde hair and all that stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and then over the years, I hunted with more and more of them. And it's now gone from a dog that I don't, I didn't like to probably my second favorite dog after English Pointers. Really? Now, what made you change? I, you know, I just, I just hunted over more of them and you know uh, as human beings when we mature and get older we evolve yeah. and our our tastes change and what we like change and you know uh probably i should have had an appreciation for that breed probably from the beginning but for some weird reason i didn't but fortunately you know as i i you know went through the the wing shooting landscape more and hunted over more of these dogs and had more exposure to them uh i just realized how how exceptional they were yeah yeah I, you know, what really got me on setters, um, cause I, before I hadn't really seen them down here, but it was two instances that sold me on setters. Um, one was when I went to the Ames plantation, the, uh, bird dog museum and seeing, um, the, the first setter to win the field trials there, it was count, I cannot remember his name, but it, it'll, it'll count noble or something like that. It'll come to me in a second. Um, crazy enough, they actually had that dog mounted and preserved. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and is, I mean, yeah, the mounted and preserved thing kind of was like it was. It struck a chord in the beginning, like why would you do that to a dog? But then when I really just took it in and just accepted it for what it was. I was really like, wow, that's just a really pretty dog. I mean, just aesthetically, even in its mountedness, it's just a really pretty dog. <laughs> how, 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 like, realistic did it look? Like, I mean, if you walked into a room and glanced at it really quickly, I mean, did you think it was a live dog standing there? Um, It reminded me of the Smithsonian Museum. Yeah. It, it looked real enough for me to know that it was a real dog. Um, but I think the way it was set up because it was kind of in the middle of the room behind glass and kind of staged, um, I think the setting kind of gave it away more so than the dog did. The dog looked fine. Um, they did, they actually had a very, in my opinion, I'm no mounting expert, but I thought it was mounted pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. In my head right now, I'm. It still seems kind of creepy. It, but uh, but but you've encouraged me to explore the idea more and uh, be more open minded about it. But what I'll do, I have a picture of it in my phone. I'll send it to you when we get off the line. Um, uh, I'll right, send here. it to you, and you make the determination on that one. <laughs> all, right, all right. Right 
right now it's creepy, but maybe maybe the photo will change my mind. I, it's probably still gonna be creepy. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a history geek, so I kind of just chalked it up and respected it as history. I mean, it was the dog that won, um, you know, the first field trial, it was Count Noble. Um, and this dog was around in 1891. That's what it was. And, um, so, you know, when I saw it, I saw the old school tail set where it was that flat tail versus the tall flag. Yeah. You know, things like that were kind of unique to me. Um, And then the second instance that I saw of a setter was actually recently um, down at the Georgia, Florida um, shooting dog handlers association field trials where uh, Curtis Brooks senior, he was running his field trials and everybody had pointers. Everybody had pointers. And he, he, he called it his shag dog. And I was like, what is he about to bring out? And I should have known just thinking about it. And he brought out a setter. And when I tell you that setter might have been a vacuum on the field. Oh, awesome. It was, I mean, it was a sight to behold. Just seeing that dog mow it down. And he ended up winning the field trial. It was beautiful. Yeah. So yeah. that well, you is. You know, it's that kind of, it's kind of. Kind of like I said, it's that kind of thing that's kind of had that dog go, you know, way up on my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, there, there is, I like a pointer and I'm, I'm clearly very biased to pointers, but you can't deny, you know, polish and finesse when it comes to dog work. You can't. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, you really can't. And, and in light of that, um, you know, talk about meeting Robert Whaley, and I also kind of wanted to know some of the best dog work that you have experienced since we were on the topic anyway. I know you've seen a ton of dogs. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, uh, but I never met Bob Whaley in person. I used to work with him on the phone quite a bit. When I first started the, ma- the magazine selling ads, okay. he, uh, I called on him to see if he wanted to run ads in our magazine, which he actually wanted to do. And uh, I therefore, you know, kind of talked to him every couple of months to kind of make sure we had the right ad going in the magazine to see what was going on in terms of changes in photos, whatever he might want to do. And, you know, we'd end up having these little conversations, uh, you know, when we were done with business. And uh, he just, you know, he was just a real, to me, at least a real nice, like low key guy. Yeah. Uh, I know he was kind of, you know, later in his life when I was dealing with him. But, uh, but he also had a sense of humor. And uh, I remember like one of the first times I talked to him, he, uh, when he, you know, he did the same thing to John Carrico, the owner of Lion Country Supply, you know, the big dog supply yep, company. Yep, I'm working uh, with him, yep. Okay, well, John Carrico told me to say that Bob Whaley did the exact same thing to him. Huh. And uh, I was chatting with him, and he, he asked me, he said, uh, Hey, uh, Terry, do you, uh, do you own a bird dog? And I said, well, yeah, yes, Mr. Whaley, I, I, I definitely do. He's like, well, what do you, what do you own? And I said, oh, I, I own a German wire hair pointer. And he kind of paused and he just says, 
Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> as, if, as if, like, I told him I had, like, terminal cancer or my grandmother just died like that. Uh, and I think he did to John Quicko with his setter buck, which was a really great English setter. But if it wasn't an English pointer, you know, he was just like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It's oh, my gosh. That's my big Robert Whaley. <laughs> well, he is a true pointer man, then. I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he was. And, you know, he was... You know, I, a lot of what he did with the breed is what, you know, counts a lot for why I want to own a setter today. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, when that whole big running thing was starting to get a little bit out of hand, he was one of the people that was instrumental in reminding people like, hey, there's a lot more to how awesome these dogs are than how fast or how big it's running. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that is one of the things I am. I, I'm taking my sweet time reading Snakefoot. Um, you know, one of his books, I have Wing and Shot first edition and the Snakefoot um, book. Um, I think it's first edition. But I when I tell you, I love that book. And I, and again, much like you, he is the reason why I got my dog. My dog is actually a Snakefoot descendant. Um, and it, it's it's things like that. I feel like Robert Whaley was a bit of a scientist in a lot of ways, um, just as much as he was an artist. Yeah, you know, and and having that type of sense of humor is just adds to, you know, my personal narrative of who I think he might have been. Um, and one thing, just just aside, I actually take a lot of pride and joy in hunting in Midway, Alabama where the Robert Whaley National um, Preserve is. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's kind of a, um, almost like a sacred place for me. Yeah. When I talk to him, he was usually at this place in New York. Okay. Uh, I catch him in Alabama once in a while, but he was uh, he was mainly in uh, in New York. But yeah, that must be uh, almost like hallowed ground when you're mm-hmm. when you're down there doing that. Oh, I can't look. I, I the last time I was there this past season, I I didn't get any quail. I took a cottontail rabbit, but um, I did. I also did not have my pointer. So this yep. season, I'm going back there. You know, I'm taking that dog down there. Yeah, you're getting the birth, so you're getting the trunk. Well, the other part of your question, Darrell, was uh, was about Bob Whaley, and then you know some of the best, you know, some of the best bird dog work that I've seen, mm-hmm. and uh, I've seen a lot of good good bird dogs. I've seen a lot of bad bird dogs. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, one of the places that really stands out, and and it was an experience I had probably 20 years ago, and. Still to this day, it's probably the best bird dog work that I've ever seen. And uh, that's, I took a trip to Flying Bee Ranch in Kamai, Idaho. Uh-huh. And Flying Bee Ranch was a, like, it's a really big, fancy, beautiful, you know, uh, hunting lodge where, you know, they have people come in and uh, they have this big release bird program. But they also have wild birds. Uh, matter of fact, I went from Maine to Idaho to uh, to go and shoot maybe some wild chuckers and then some of the other things they had out there. And then uh, I'll never forget, you know, the first bird I shoot when I get there is a rough grouse, the exact same bird I shoot in my backyard when really? I'm here in Maine. But, uh, but that place, uh, it's kind of a high-volume hunting place, and they put out a lot of birds. They get a lot of these birds that are that hold over. And, again, like I said, there's wild birds. So they had this kennel of of 40 or 50 bird dogs, you know, mostly pointers, but some setters and some other breeds too. And these dogs, this place has like a four month season. They, you know, they, 
they there's birds like all the time and I kind of started to factor in my head, you know, the, the number of birds that we're seeing in the field, how many days a week these dogs are hunting, how many, you know, weeks during the course of a season they're hunting, and on and on and on, and realize that these birds, these dogs are, in the course of a year, are having somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 5, bird contacts wow. in a season. And like I said, a variety of birds. They have pheasants there. They have chucker there. They have rough grouse there. They had quail there. They had Hungarian partridge there. You know, all kinds of stuff. And these dogs were just, like, absolutely incredible. Like, just all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, they're pointing, like, you know, single birds after the cubby's been shot, you know, with a with retrieved bird still in their mouth. Wow. You know, all kinds of stuff and like that. And, uh, and they even at one point brought out a Weimaraner, and I was oh. like, okay, well, the quality's going to go down a little bit now. <laughs> not that Weimaraners aren't a good breed. I love the dogs. Yeah. Uh, but but They're that not... Weimaraner was as good as any other dog they had out there. Really? Uh, that thing was, oh, it was phenomenal. Like, it just was, it was, they were running it with a couple of English uh, pointers, and, uh, you know, if you covered up the dogs and you couldn't see the breed and you were just going on by, like, the shadow performance of the dog, you'd probably say the Weimaraner might have actually been the best of the three. Get out of here. Yeah. I mean, and, they, and all those dogs, like I said, in that whole kennel, they were just incredible dogs. You know, and first, my first outing, I thought, okay, well, you know, these are the best dogs. These are phenomenal dogs. And over the course of three days, I must have hunted with 15 or 20 of their dogs, and they were all like that. Wow. Okay. That is interesting. The fact that you brought up a Weimaraner is, and, and they're beautiful dogs, you know, for anybody that does have them, um, but I mean, to be totally truthful, no, compared to an English pointer or anything like that, they're not always necessarily known for that type of, you know, that being that strong in, in their dog work. Yeah. That is but, awesome. You know, I'm a believer that the best examples of just about every breed are phenomenal bird dogs. Mm -hmm. Now, some breeds have more depth. So for example, if you took, took 10, English pointers, and you took 10 uh, Italian Spinonis, for example. Well, you know, of those 10 uh, English pointers of good breeding and good training, you know, like nine or 10 of them are going to be really good bird dogs. Right. Uh, the Spinonis, you know, it may not go that deep, but that very, very best Spinoni is a phenomenal bird dog right. by, by any, any measure. Right, right. And, and anyone would want to hunt um, behind that dog and it would be just as respectable in the field as anything else. No, I totally get it. You know, it would even, and you bring up a very interesting point, Terry, an Italian Spinoni in the States might be a much different dog than the ones over in Italy, if that makes sense. Um, as yeah, well, far as quality and breeding. In my opinion, in my opinion, they're better here. Really? Uh, uh, yeah, we. I, I'm being. I, I'm a. I'm actually a dual U.S. French citizen, so I'm not overly nationalistic or anything like that. But, yeah. uh Man, Americans know how to train bird dogs really, real well. Like I'll in take the UK, it. There's phenomenal trainers too, but uh, uh, man, I'm probably stepping on some toes and probably <laughs> have some people cancel your podcast. Fun, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think American dog trainers are probably the best anywhere. So what if, if you know, because we're going down a rabbit hole, if you don't mind, what makes you say that? Uh, just the, the, the way that, that we're into it mm -hmm. and the level that we, we get into these things. For 
Uh, a lot of people in Europe, for example, bird dog, hunting is something for the affluent. And the, the affluent, you know, kind of don't really get their hands on dogs as much as us blue-collar Americans do. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up as a kid. You've got your dog. We're not sending this dog over to be trained by somebody else. Right. You know, we're, we're doing it ourselves and learning a lot about the process. And, and blue-collar people eventually become white-collar people who have the money to send it off to a trainer. Right. They're so educated by that point that they're not just sending it off to any trainer. They right. demand that their trainer is very good, trains at a very high level. Right. So I have a, in my opinion, it's just an opinion, that's the, that's the way it's kind of worked out over, over a couple of centuries here. Right. No, I, I definitely, um, crazy thing is I definitely agree with that point. And, you know, I don't, I don't even think it's a, a thing where listeners will be upset or anything like that. And it's always good fun to, to uh, talk about that. But what I do appreciate about the American landscape when it comes to bird dogs is, well, most of our land is public also. So we have more opportunities. You know, it's nothing for me to drive from Georgia to Oregon if I want to. And I think that's how Oregon people say it, Oregon. Um, (laughs) I, it's nothing for me to drive from here to there as long as I have the gas money, the time and get my dog on a variety of birds, whereas, you know, across the across the pond, you're just not going to be able to do that. You don't have that type of access. Um, yeah, and, and that's resulted in, in, this, in the states, bird hunting and bird dogs becoming a huge machine, right. for lack of a better term, compared to what it is. And, you know, everything going into that machine is, you know, years of intensive training, years of intensive, intensive hunting, and years, you know, uh, over the years, very, very high standards having been developed. Right, right. And I, I mean, I definitely, um, I can definitely attest to that. And so, you know, going, you know, into the dogs, and you've seen so many of these dogs, and you've covered a lot of ground with them. You have a, you have a, like, a preferred breed? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pointers and setters, but... Again, I love short hairs too. Again, now you, I'll hunt over that warmer runner I told you about any day of the week. And you know what? Um, as much of a pointing guy as I am, a, a good, well-trained flushing dog is awesome too. You know, I've been—that's another thing. I talk about how I, I like setters a lot more than I used to. Uh, I become a huge fan of you know some of these awesome springers and cockers that people have. I think mm-hmm. those breeds are just getting better and better. Mm-hmm. More people have those dogs, and I definitely understand why. And uh, you know, where uh, so many years ago, I never would have considered a cocker uh, uh, or a springer. It wouldn't be my choice now. But if somebody said you can't have any dogs you want, uh, you're getting a cocker or a springer. I wouldn't cry for a millisecond. Right. Uh, I'm totally happy with that too. Right. Well, I, um, I, uh, I, I, I was talking to a buddy Jay Lowry from Ryglin Gun Dogs, and yep. you know what? If I had the space for another flushing dog, Jay would have sold me. <laughs> he, and you know, one of the things I love uh, more than just about anything else in a breed, and it's one of the reasons I like English pointers so much is just incredible high drive. Oh, my gosh, you know, that, yes. Those dogs that are just machines that will get after it. And, man, uh, you, 
I don't think anything outdoes, you know, a, a Springer or a Cocker when it comes to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, well, if you think about the mechanics of it, and I use my lab as just as much upland as I do waterfowl, because that's how I started. But if I just think about the mechanics of how low to the ground they are, um, yep. the amount of energy that they expend is probably a lot more efficient than this, you know, 55-pound dog that I have here you know, flying through the brush. And from what I understand about a cocker too, I mean, they make a, they make some noise in the bush now. (laughs) They, they are really stirring some stuff up from what I also have been told springers and cockers flush quail. um, The quail flush better when you sending those types of dogs in. Now I, all, all of the best places mm -hmm. down South, Practically all of them now have cockers for the exact mm-hmm. reason you just said. Mm-hmm. They get out. They absolutely get out. And, hey, when you think about it, if I'm reincarnated as a quail, the, the, I think maybe the last dog I want to see is a cocker. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because they're going to get out. from. And the difference yeah. is, I think a lab, it's a retrieving dog. I mean, it's it's that's what it's, what's, what it's, what's in it. Is going to likely stick its nose in the area before it kind of charges in versus a cocker and a springer, from what I understand, is just going to go. I mean, they are all in and they're there to flush. I mean, that's all they want to do. And Lord help them if that if any quail are just sitting there. I mean, you're, you're sitting eye to eye with a dog at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See, OK, look, you. Terry, I knew you was I, I knew you was good, uh, uh, good folks, but we might be like minded, man. <laughs> well, a lot of wing shooters, a lot of wing shooters are. Most of us are in it for the same reasons or very similar reasons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So, just you know, going into the depths of. Being in the magazine industry, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm transitioning kind of harsh, but I really wanted to, to get this one on there too. But what do you think in, in all the time that you've spent in the magazine industry, what do you think like truly makes a compelling story for shooting sportsmen? You know, a lot of people like different things, mm-hmm. but, you know, I can answer for myself and, you know, like we were saying, a lot of us are similar. So, so perhaps, you know, what I like is what a lot of other people like also, but, you know, in my opinion, what I'm looking for in, in a mag- an article in, in any book or magazine or story in any book or magazine is, uh, is something that's well-written. That's written by, you know, a really great writer that knows the writing craft really, really well. And, you know, you can, you can take the story of, uh, you know, being charged by a grizzly bear in Alaska, written by somebody who's not a good writer, and take a good writer and have that person write about being stuck in a phone booth on uh, in New York City. The phone booth article is more exciting than the grizzly bear charge when it's written by by a good writer. Right. Uh, they have ways of just making something some well. And then the you know the more you read, the more you start to recognize and realize good writing. You know, I had no formal training mm-hmm. uh, before I got to the magazine in you know literature. I mean, of course, I had my lit classes in college and writing classes and all that stuff. 
but but over the course of time, you know, being exposed to so many really really great writers, classic writers and contemporary writers, I started to get a feel for that. And the more of a feel I got for it, the more I started to really appreciate it. Uh, the other thing, you know, that I think is that I always like and most people like in in what they're reading is, you know, when the writer touches on something that's universal, something mm-hmm. that everybody can relate to, you know, when they're talking about, I mean, this is almost cliche, but when they're talking about the smell of Hopi's gun cleaning, mm-hmm. you know, solvent, mm-hmm. you know, you think everybody, when they hear that, they, they can, their everybody's mind goes right to the same place. Yeah, I know that smell. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that smell. I feel the same way this guy does where somebody's describing, you know, the first time that the first dog they ever trained went on point on a wild bird. You know, it's a universal feeling. Everybody knows what that feeling is like. And in some cases, for most people, it's almost indescribable until they read it when it's written, after it's written by somebody who has a skill to be able to put that into words. Right. Uh, and, and then the, one of the, the other things that's really, really important to me is uh, I, I always like things that, I get bored by seeing the same thing over and over again. So whenever something is original or, or different or, or educational in a different way, that, that always gets my attention. Right, right. Well, I, um, I'm i definitely taking note. That was a bit of a selfish question. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've written quite a bit for uh, Project Upland and Orvis. So, you know, I've just always wondered those things. Like, you know, what, you know, what are these great writers, you know, what makes their work so timeless? Your Robert Rourke's, your Ernest Hemingway's, your Havila Babcock's, um, your Reed Bryant's, you know, um, you know, folks like that, that are really writing these super compelling stories. You know, I'm always interested in that. The the folks at Project Upland, AJ DeRosa, like all of these guys to me are, and they've been so welcoming to me in the writer's industry, um, and, or in, I guess in the writer's circle, to be more specific, um, you know, I'm, I'm always asking myself, like, OK, what is what is something that I would want to read, you know, first and foremost? But what is something that's going to take people back to a moment in time? Yeah. You know, what's what is the writing? What is going to make my writing timeless? So. Shame, uh, shamelessly, I had to ask you that question. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, a great thing to do is, you know, you'll, over the course of time, you'll submit manuscripts mm-hmm. to magazines, for example, and uh, <laughs> keep in mind that you're going to get rejected a lot. Of and course. When you're getting when you're getting rejected, keep in mind also that a lot of the writers that you admire that have been in the industry for a long time, that you consider to be great writers, they also get rejected from time to time as well. Right. And uh, usually, a great editor, when he's sending you a uh, rejection letter, which will always be very courteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as harsh as it sounds. Rejection letter. Right. But anyway, uh, 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 they will, especially. They know that you're a young aspiring writer. I'll point out in a very constructive, helpful manner why they rejected the article. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a great learning opportunity who, or for somebody who wants to grow as a writer right. to pay attention to these things. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't want to take that personally. Some people are overly defensive and they get angry, you know, when an editor makes comments. But uh, the best writers in the world, uh, Michael Crichton, you know, the best New York Times bestseller. 
they all have editors. Mm -hmm. uh, the best writer that you can ever imagine, your Robert Wark had an editor, got into fights with his editor over what the editor wanted to change. Really? Uh, and sometimes those fights, you know, the, the, uh, the, the bitterness lasts for years and years, and sometimes it ends with the writer two months after, you know, not speaking to his editor, writing a thank you letter. Hey, thank you for doing that. It did make the manuscript better. I'm glad we did that. That's why I have you do this. Thanks so much for, for helping me. Right. Well, and, and see, that's really cool. I did not know that. Um, and that's a very gentlemanly way of going about it. I really like that. I did not know that. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a regular <laughs> standard part of the profession. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, since we're talking about writers, are there any, you know, that have been featured in, in shooting sportsman magazine that, that I mean, have really resonated with you, maybe told a story that, especially with all the experience that you had, are there any writers that have stuck out to you? There's some guys like over the years that we work with, you know, for a long time, some of them have passed on, but okay. uh, their knowledge when it came to guns, like the, the fine custom guns was absolutely like incredible. Like the details that they could remember about special guns, you know, guns that were made for, you know, a Maharaja in India or a czar in Russia made by, you know, one of the English custom gun companies, you know, one of these $100,000 guns with all the fancy engraving that are kind of, you know, beautiful works of art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of these writers, like, knew all the details about guns that were made 80 years ago. That kind of always blew my mind. But again, like I told you, I, I like things that are different. You know, people that are writing about different things or writing in a different way. Uh, currently, there's a guy that we've, we've had, and it's funny, uh, Jay Dowd, who you may know mm -hmm. from Austin Low Life, uh, uh, was chatting with me about this uh, last week. You know, he wanted to get to know more about this guy. But a guy named Garhard Stevenson, who's been writing for us for about a year or so now. But, you know, this guy, he's, uh, he did a Snowcock article for us, and the Snowcock has been very popular lately. Mm -hmm. But this dude, like, he does his own thing. Like, his dog, I don't even know what it is. It's like, it's like it looks like some type of border collie that he's hunting birds with. It's not, oh. a, doesn't seem to be a pointing breed that I recognize or a flushing breed that I recognize, but it's just one of these guys, like, who doesn't care? He's doing his own thing. And... Of all in all of my years at looking at wing shooting magazines and photos of upland hunting and dogs, when I see when I saw the photos of this guy and his dog, I was looking at something I'd never seen before. Wow! And I mean, first of all, you're hunting snowcock with a dog. Let's start there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would be afraid of my dog yeah, even yeah, falling off a like cliff. That. He's definitely a, a different a different cat. But, you know, he does the cool things. He does a lot of hunting on public land. He, uh, you know, he's got a camper that he hauls around and does that thing. You know that you and I often have our eyes glazed over as we're dreaming about being able to to do that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I definitely need to find his writings. Um, you know, and kind of review them. And the the most recent shooting sportsman. Um, so I will definitely be going, doing my backtracking information because now you got my interest. Um, yeah, I read a lot and it takes me forever to get through stuff, but that just jumped to the to the top of my list. Huh. Yeah, yeah, and if you know Jay Dowd, you'll have to compare notes with him because he seems to be kind of getting into that guy. Oh, Jay Dowd is a great artist from what I uh, from what I've seen and never spoke to him, but he's he's been on my radar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, reach reach out to him sometime. Okay, uh, I think you'll you'll. Uh, he's a super nice guy, and uh, you'll enjoy getting to know him. Absolutely. Oh, I definitely will. See, 
All right, I got my work cut out for me. So, you know, I, I think it would it would be in bad taste to not ask you as someone that represents shooting sportsmen, what are you shooting right now? Like, what is your choice choice gun before I get to my last set of questions? Uh, I do practically all of my hunting with one gun. Oh, you like me. That's yes. Gun. Yeah, I had a... Um, a gunsmith take a Beretta 687 EEL 20-gauge action and then from there build out a custom gun for me from that action. Wow. So we had, you know, a beautiful walnut uh, stock that we did with the Prince of, of, of Wales grip. And uh, we had a, 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 a lot of barrels are chemically blued, the bluing on the barrels. Mm-hmm. We had a, a barrel brought in, from, a set of barrels brought in from Italy that were rust blued in an old traditional manner. And uh, I don't like the way barrels with flip choke tubes kind of flare out at the end. So mm-hmm. we had those barrels be fixed choke barrels, and we sent it to Briley to have choke tubes put in afterwards. A lot of crazy stuff that a gun geek would want to do. <laughs> uh, the stock, of course, was, was fitted to me. Uh, I had the gun case colored. You can't get that gun case color, but I had, it, I had that action case colored before they put the gun together. And a few other wacky details that kind of escape my mind right now. It's a 20-gauge, and oh, uh, I use it, like I said, for everything, even waterfowl. I'll, I'll shoot geese with it. Uh, the only downside is when I shoot things like geese, uh, I have to pay a lot of money for, you know, sh- ammunition that's got high density shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise it's not necessarily ethical to be shooting, you know, geese at 45 yards, uh, with just steel shot. Well, okay. Wow. We have... I, I do all my hunting with that gun. Whenever I travel, it gets in an airline case and goes with me when I'm traveling around here. I use that gun. And uh, that's my, my, my tried and true partner. And the beautiful thing is, uh, is uh, unlike a bird dog, this thing will be with me forever. <laughs> wow. I mean, there's so... I wish the bird dogs could, but, but uh, Look, I if, that. Well, I, I definitely wish they could, too. Um, you know, that is so amazing. First of all, I shoot a 20-gauge myself. I shoot a Beretta 686. Um and that was my that was just my dream gun. But the fact that you've had all of those customizations, uh, you know, added to that gun, well, I think it it, it it's definitely in good taste. I mean, it speaks to shooting sportsmen. <laughs> well, you know, also I knew I when I did this, I knew this was going to be gun the gun that I'd be shooting with my entire life. Yeah. So I figured I'd just have it exactly the way that I wanted it. Right. It makes for, sense from the beginning. That that absolutely makes sense. Now, and of course, you had it fitted to you and measured and all that stuff. Yeah. 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 If you don't mind, would you, could you email me a photo of that? I would love to see what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I would, that sounds like a, a very, very nice shooting gun. I've always had this dream of shooting a Beretta shotgun. My, my only other choice that I want in life at this point in time is an AYA um, 16 gauge. I don't want anything else. Just a a side-by-side AYA 16 gauge shotgun. Um, Not sure what model I want yet, and I definitely don't have the money for it right now. (laughs) Well, you know, those guns, uh, particularly some of the ones on the second-hand market, the prices are actually almost heading more down than they are up. Really? And uh, it's always nice to have something to aspire to like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the good news is 
you know, you're going to have it one day. Yeah. I'm sure you will. Yes, sir. And if it takes longer, you're just going to enjoy it that much more when you finally get it. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I am... I am a very, I like looking at guns and I like reading about other guns, but I've had enough at this point in time and, and they weren't fancy guns, but they, I shot well with the things that I had before. Um, once I got my 686, um, I feel like I can knock anything out of the air with it. And I am very, very committed to one thing. I get, I get um, tunnel vision for things. Yeah. And I get very, very, very invested in it. So until I get that AYA, I mean, I'll just be shooting that Beretta 20 gauge. Um, and, and it's just, it fits me like a glove. Out the box, it does. Um, yeah. So I've got no problems with it. Um, but that's just a really cool gun that you got. I would love to see that. So my 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 last two questions, Terry. I don't want to hold you up too much. Sure. <laughs> so... I want to talk about um, two questions, and I could go on for hours with you, but two last questions. Um, what do you think, like, how would you define the culture of wing shooting today? Like, growing, evolving, changing, what would you say about it? I, it's a lot of things are changing in in our world, mm-hmm. and, and wing shooting certainly has changed a bit also some of those changes like are, are a little bit disappointing uh make me a little bit worried and others are, are are very positive okay but i feel like there's probably fewer people involved in wing shooting than than there used to be yep. uh, i guess there's overall fewer people involved in hunting and those are for the usual set of cultural and societal reasons you know people are getting involved at younger ages with other things uh, owning a gun today seems less practical than it's ever been. Uh, it's hard to find places to hunt. Uh, but then again, you know, on the other hand, uh, the Internet's a great thing. You know, people can learn what want to get into wing shooting, can now go on online and watch videos of people, you know, on how to shoot a shotgun, how to train a bird dog, how to hunt quail, and all these things. I think that's very, very helpful. So people are able to see more of wing shooting more easily than they ever were. The actual participation is probably a little bit harder. Right. Uh, that's harder than it used to be. But I think it's at least a positive that people can, can get that exposure over the Internet uh, more easily than, than they could have beforehand. Uh, but I think one of the, 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 the most positive things that I've seen recently is uh, more women getting involved in in bird hunting and hunting overall, but you know we're talking in the context of bird hunting right now. Mm-hmm. And the firearms industry in the 25 years that I've been involved with it, you know, has always you know uh, said you know hey, there's more women getting into hunting. And I think for a long time it was really wishful thinking. Uh, it was a line that we used to parrot over and over again, but really you weren't seeing it in the field or at the ranges. But, you know, in the last five or six years, it actually has really started to happen. And, you know, I was telling you earlier about these hunts that we do, you know, where where 14, 16 guys get together, you know, at a hunting lodge. When I said guys, I misspoke because sometimes, and I apologize for that, but uh, sometimes there's uh, there's women on these hunts. Sometimes there's two or three women on hunts, and they're not coming as observers or or as non-shooting, you know, members of the party. They're coming, like, with 20-gauge side-by-sides 
ready to shoot more quail like they were the week before, on, you know, back in their home state or in their backyard or whatever. So that's been a, a really cool development, you know, the, the women coming along. And, you know, the, the people that I've been around, you know, they're gentlemen enough. They're not stuffy, but they're gentlemen enough where, you know, they don't feel that having a woman around, you know, reigns on the parade in any way, shape or form. Right, right. I can agree. Um, and I've definitely seen that a bit more and been a huge advocate of it myself. Um, yeah. Just because it's, it's an enjoyable thing to just to have that type of inclusion, you know, um, I, I can appreciate that you even brought that up. That's that's cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. and, and I want to continue um, advocating for more women um, participating in bird dogs and guns and things like that. And a, a great deal. What's crazy is a lot. A large percentage of my follower base are women, which is kind of cool. Yeah, you know it, it's it's really cool. So, you know, Terry, I know we didn't get through a lot of the, all of the questions, but my last question is is especially about the the magazine in and of itself. What do you think the importance and significance of a magazine like Shooting Sportsman or just Upland magazines are today? Like, what relevance do you think they carry in print? especially in the digital age? Yeah, I think that, that's a great, great question. I love the way that you pose the question. Uh, I think the, the thing about magazines and books, for that matter, that really stands out, let's call it print, um, they're one of the last venues for truly great writing. Uh, on the whole, if you pick up a copy of New Yorker magazine mm -hmm. or... Gray Sporting Journal or Shooting Sports and Magazine. Uh, so whether you're reading about New York or national politics or whatever, or you're reading about you know fly fishing or wing shooting, though the right quality of writing that you're going to see there is generally going to be leagues beyond what you're normally going to see online or you know perhaps in other places. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I like that about magazines. I told you earlier I've become the, you know a a big appreciator of fine writing mm -hmm. and uh and you know when you consider that the, these magazines are really one of the, the last great venues for that writing well that obviously naturally makes it you know something that I, I i'm proud to be part of and then you know the other thing too is that you know online does a lot of things better without a doubt i mean online presents information and graphics you know it presents information probably and more information and more succinctly than a magazine does or print does mm -hmm. and uh graphics uh if it's not better than print it's at least as good graphically uh but print you know print does writing better particularly literary type writing right. and most of the people that i know if they're going to check sports scores or the bag limits for arizona or the season dates for Arizona, they're going to go online. They prefer to go online. I prefer to go online for that. Right. However, if you want to read a Robert Rourke article or a George Bird Evans article or a Reed Bryant, you know, uh, a part of the book that he may have written, uh, most people, even younger people, would rather do that with print in their hands than doing that on a screen of some sort. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um, and I really wanted to you know, allow that question to be the concluding question of this podcast, because I really do think that um, magazines, I mean, for in this culture, they are the things that carry us through the season. They're the things that carry us in the off season. 
They're the things that, you know, all of my shooting sportsmen magazines, you know, I hope my daughter one day picks them up. I, I posted a picture on social media right before we got online of two of my favorite issues, you know, of shooting sportsman magazine. Yeah, it's um one of my favorites is the uh, September October uh, 2018 issue with the the grouse yeah. on the front. I just love how that magazine is just composed. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, I, well, tell you, I, I'll tell you what. Uh, 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 you ask me to to send you pictures of my gun and of a few other things. Uh, I'm going to ask you to send me your mailing address, and I'll put you down for a free subscription to the magazine. You are kidding. Are you serious? Wow. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. You're, you know, you're, I enjoy this conversation. I like what you stand for and, uh, and all that stuff and would be proud to count you as a regular subscriber of our magazine. Absolutely. And for, thank you so much. First of all, wow, that just blew my mind. Um, you have a constant advocate out of me, Terry. I mean, thank you. seriously, I mean, I can't thank you enough for that. Um, so I will definitely send you all of that information um, ASAP when we when we're done with the conversation because it, it's it's folks like you that are over these magazines that you know are are keeping the relevance and the, the nostalgia alive you know storytelling you have to understand I came in this three and a half years ago and I taught myself which meant a lot of reading it, it meant uh, it meant to read a lot of magazines. And a lot of literature and things like that. And yeah. and a lot of that information you cannot find. I'm sorry, I just don't think you can necessarily find it online. It's going to be in print. And those are the things that are really, really, really keeping this industry alive. Is keeping the narrative alive. You know, I, and the other issue, I mean, I, I said two, the other issue that I really liked was the November, December 2018 issue. It was like back to back, honestly, because it was a yellow lab on it yeah. with, a, with a wood duck in his mouth. It's it, That spoke Georgia to me. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, with the wood duck for sure. Yeah. And, and so it's things like that that <laughs> you, you can't miss that. You can't lose that. So I can't thank you enough for that. <laughs> No, you're 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 more than welcome. Um, All right. Well, uh, I am going to go home and have a beer, Darrell. Look, I just finished one, so <laughs> I, I I I will talk your head off before you leave. Where, give us all the information about shooting sportsmen. How I need all of my followers to get to to head your way. Well, you know, uh, best way to learn everything about the magazine is to go to our website, uh, shootingsportsman.com, and that's shooting sportsman, M-A-N, plural, at the end. And uh, if you like wing shooting, if you like bird dogs, if you like shotguns, you're going to like what you see on our site. And, of course, uh, our uh, everything regarding, you know, the ways to get to our Instagram account and Facebook are on can be found on that website, too. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, like I said, you have a absolute shooting sportsman advocate out of me. Um, I know that my listeners are going to enjoy this podcast. And guys, that is another, I told y'all, a special and phenomenal episode of the Gundog Notebook podcast with the Terry Bombett of, of Shooting Sportsman Magazine. Guys, I really hope y'all enjoyed this. Um, please reach out to me 
about more details and subscribing and things like that. So, anywho, we will catch up with y'all next week. Thanks again.